All right, everyone, let's call a timeout. You're listening to the Timeout Podcast, a show where we talk with leading surgeons about the key lessons that they've learned in their careers and some of the decisions that they've had to make along the way. My name's Jason. On today's episode, we'll be speaking with Professor Peter Chung, who is an orthopedic surgeon based at St. Vincent's Hospital in Melbourne. Prof Chung, welcome to the show. Would you like to introduce yourself to our listeners for those who haven't met you before? Yeah, I'm an orthopedic surgeon and my main area of work is with cancer. I also do work with joint replacement surgery. One other part of my existence is being an academic surgeon. So I'm really embedded in the research side of things here at St. Vincent's as well as the University of Melbourne. Um, so with all of our guests, we like to ask them a few introductory or warm-up questions. So the first one is, can you take us through your morning so far? We know that from a few people that you're a proponent of early mornings. How do you like to start your day usually? Well, thankfully, COVID hasn't had much impact because my world starts very, very early. I usually get up at about 3 or 3.30 in the morning. It's something that I've done out of necessity in the past, but it's become a drill now. I don't actually mind it because you only have control over the start of the day, never the end of the day. And so that means I can plan out what I want. I usually wake up, I lie around just thinking about elements that have fixed my mind over the previous 24 hours or what I have to do for the day. Then at about 4 or 4.30, I organize myself for a run and I go for a five-kilometer run, get back, and if it's still enough time, I might just do some basic exercises, get myself sorted out, and then into the hospital for ward rounds. What this means is uh, you, you can see your patients without being pestered too much by too many other people and you can spend time with your patients chatting it's kind of early as well they most of them appreciate it some of them don't and i don't blame them quite frankly but it's it's a routine that i've done for the last 25 odd years is to come in early that way i can spend time with my patients in terms of you know what you're listening to or reading at the moment can you tell us a little bit about that is there is there anything that you'd recommend for us to read or listen to well i i think Medicine as a whole has changed. It has changed in so many different ways. And one should really think about 21st century medicine as being completely new and disruptive. It should not be 20th century medicine on steroids, because that's a bit passe now. Everything I did at the end of the 20th century was just a little bit better than the middle of the 20th century, or considerably better than the start of the 20th century. But that's the 20th century. In the 21st century, we have virtual reality, we have the internet, we have precision medicine and surgery, we have image-guided robotic surgery, things that really test us. And, and it's a great opportunity, really, because people can now match their dreams and their aspirations with technology. Previously, technology was so far behind what we were hoping to achieve, that everything really stayed within the realms of dreams. But now technology is moving so fast that what you set your mind to, there is a high likelihood that it will be resolved. For example, I'm, I often say I'm the captain of the good ship, no can do. Because when I come up with a crazy idea, people say, oh, you can't do that because we don't have this and we don't have that and the machines aren't good enough. And my response is, if you wait, couple of years, the machines will be better than they are today, and they will allow you to do precisely what you are hoping to do. After all, what we think about 
is really an amalgam of our experiences, our, able, our ability to predict into the future, our appreciation of how science and life is going. So it's a long-winded answer to your very simple question of what do I read? I read about the future. In many respects, I'm a futurist. I, I like to think, where will we be in 30 years? How do we start planning to make us as effective as we possibly can be? And what it is is really a generational thought rather than what's in directly in front of us. What's directly in front of us, we know how to solve that because someone 20 years ago thought about that. So our job now is to think 20, 30 years ahead of ourselves. In terms of another warm-up question, I guess, <laughs> uh, what's one thing that you can't live without? One thing that I can't live without? Well, there are many things I can't live without. I can't live without my family. I can't live without my pets. I can't live without my horse, who's not a pet. I think there are people, there are philosophies, there are opportunities that we can't live without. And that's actually what makes life for me. These things become the important part of switching me on and off every day. I need to feel that life is about opportunities. I need to feel that I influence people by giving them opportunities and by the same token receiving opportunities. The serendipity, today I was having a conversation with another surgeon about the profession and how it needed to improve. And he mentioned to me that his family were indigenous. And I thought, well, that's fantastic because I'm just embarking on a really new journey of research looking at indigenous health in musculoskeletal research. And he said, well, you know, my wife and my daughter would just love to be part of this. So I said, well, that's fantastic because we actually need indigenous researchers as well, or people with that real frame of mind, because indigenous research is so complex, you can't just simply do it. And that's the serendipity, that's the opportunity, and, and I couldn't live without that. Some would say we actually create our own opportunity. You know, we're the CEOs of our own lives. We have to work hard for the company to create opportunities. And every day, we've got to think, how can we do it better than yesterday? If there was one profession outside of surgery that you could try, what would that be and why? Well, I joke with my family about this. I don't know how much it reflect truly what I feel, but I said to them, if I was not going to be a doctor, I'd be a priest. And they, they looked at me with one of those looks, and I've often felt this. What I get tremendous joy about is mentorship. It's being compassionate. It's holding someone together when everything is against them. And we face that with our patients who have cancer. I have young mothers who've been given the diagnosis of cancer and we all watch their children play around their feet while I'm giving this diagnosis. Or mothers who've got three or four kids and they're only in their mid-40s and I've just given them a, a fatal diagnosis. And it's being a doctor is how do you care for these people in that moment? It's not about how good a surgeon you are or what great cure you're going to come up with. It's how do you actually care for them? And there's this, this saying, you treat many people, you cure very few, but you have to care for all. And that sense of caring has always been very, very special. I get a, a lot of joy out of being able to care for someone. And I guess that's why my perception of a priest is that they're there to care for the flock, as it were. And my 
senses to hear and listen to people, to understand actually what you're listening to, and then to do something about it that's meaningful. I think this idea that your desire to care for people was something that developed at a very young age. When you were in, I think it was in primary school, sort of when you wanted to become a doctor, is that right? Yeah. I can remember I was actually in grade one. It was really weird. And to recount that story, another student had fallen over and grazed his knee. And so I followed him to the back of the classroom where this teacher pulled out this big white box with a red cross on the top of it. And inside there was this orange bottle, this bottle of orange fluid that when mixed with water became milky white. And I thought, wow, look at that. That's got to be magic. And then applied it across this wound and suddenly everything seemed to be well again. And clearly we know that was an antiseptic like Dettol and they were just merely cleaning the wound. But the whole idea of tending to someone who had just been injured and the face of the young boy got some comfort out of that showed that they felt better and I thought, well, that's the most fantastic thing. And it really did have a huge impact on me to the point that I can actually see it right now, that very thing. And uh, it has influenced my journey through life and into what I do. Perhaps I would have been something else, I don't know, but that was certainly very, very meaningful for me. If, if asked would I do anything differently, the answer would be no. I would do the same thing again, hopefully better the second time around. In terms of your childhood, you were born in KL, Malaysia. Yeah, well, my memory of Malaysia is not a strong one in so much as when I was two, my parents went to the United Kingdom. They were both doctors at a time when the British had made a huge impact on the Malaysian peninsula, had been involved in the development of the University of Malaya and had developed scholarships for young doctors so they had scholarships and went across to the United Kingdom to study further. And you know, the young family went with them. My sister and I went with them. So we were there for about three years, during which time I, I have memories of England, different parts of England. I came back the age, I guess, then of five and at 10 came to Australia. So I've been, I've been in Australia for almost 50 years now. So I'm approaching my 60th year soon. Not when, but soon. And uh, so that's almost 50 years. It's a snippet of life, but it was interesting. It was actually a time where lots of things were happening in Malaysia. We lived through a cholera outbreak, much the same way here. There were things that we had to be really careful about. We lived through a very short period of civil unrest, a civil war almost. So the curfew of staying at home, being a mandatory detention of people out in the street. It was in some ways reminiscent of what's going on right now here in Australia with COVID-19. It does bring back memories. It, it was actually quite traumatic at that time for me. I can remember being extremely frightened by the whole thing. So it makes me appreciate how well we're doing in Australia with, with our efforts in this war. So, I mean, we've talked a little bit about what your parents did, both being doctors. What were you like as a boy growing up in a family with two parents that were doctors? I was probably the quieter of the two. About eight years after me, my brother was born. I had the middle child syndrome, which is fine by me. I like to be left alone, as it were. It's really, I don't believe I'm particularly demanding, but I'm sure every child thinks that. <laughs> it was a good childhood. It was an ability to see different countries, experience different things. And although we were all very young, it does leave an imprint on your mind. 
the places you've been, names. Since that time, I've enjoyed traveling a lot. So a lot of my time as a professional is involved with traveling and meeting groups from all around the world, uh, having a very large collaborative network, both of researchers and clinicians, and being involved in international societies that allow me to experience the care of people through other people's hands and eyes. It's, it's actually a real privilege to be in this sort of position. When you moved to Australia when you were 10 years old, obviously Australia then was very different to Australia now. What were some of the challenges that maybe you had encountered and what do you think overcoming them taught you? I guess the first challenge is being Chinese in an essentially white Anglo-Saxon Protestant society, as it were. I was brought up in Noble Park, and Noble Park was a middle-class community on the outskirts of Dandenong. Dandenong was one of the big agricultural animal sort of center points. Drovers used to bring a lot of cattle and sheep into there to the Dandenong sales, as it were, and the whole area was surrounded by market gardens and, and the such like. So I was the only Chinese boy in the school, maybe even in the district almost, and it was a novelty. You could tell by what people said to you in the streets it was a novelty. I don't think I met any cruelty, any meanness, just amusement that there should be someone who's Chinese in the community, as it were. And like every young boy in a primary school, in a state school, you will meet the same level of interrogation from your school buddies, teachers, whoever you like. And that's where you learn to stand on your own two feet because kids can be very honest in what they believe, know, are taught. So the schoolyard rumbles and the friends and the, the little groups and cliques found out all about that. In, in Malaysia, there was much less of that. But toward the end, because of the civil unrest, there was an ethnic issue that became really apparent to me. So I guess coming to Australia, you recognize the differences, very similar to what you left, but there was certainly no meanness in that. Then after that, I went in high school to Melbourne Grammar School. And that's a very interesting place. You know, Melbourne Grammar School, upper echelon, that's where prime ministers come from. People are very privileged. And it had its own set of rules. Being the second Chinese boy in Melbourne Grammar School had its own experiences. And might I say, I thoroughly enjoyed my time there. Because what it taught me was that it was no different than being in a state school. People were just as frank in the schoolyard. They said what they were going to say, whether they were at Melbourne Grammar School or in a schoolyard at a state school. And one had to assimilate to life. So it was never a problem being Chinese at all. And because it was never a problem, I didn't act as if it was a problem. And maybe that's why I wasn't treated like it was a problem. You know, I don't, I don't know the answer to that, but in life, I've never had one occasion where I felt I couldn't do something. Anything I really set my mind to, I managed to achieve. And it's perhaps because I did come from a privileged situation of having parents who provided, created opportunity. It was probably the, the upbringing of working hard, being honest, trying your best for the people around you. And at the end of the day, with all those attributes that your parents and your friends and your relatives impart on you, you have to make something of it. In terms of growing up in the 70s, you've mentioned as well in the past that the international climate was very different back then. And then 
I think along with that comes a very strong sense of possibility in the future. I'm wondering, in terms of growing up in that period, what did you take away? Yeah, well, that was an extremely exciting time, and it had an influence over everything we did. And I think John F. Kennedy was the person who really lit that match when he took on the challenge to get man safely onto the moon and back home again. Until that time was merely a dream. But he made it a reality because he gave it purpose, he gave it meaning, he gave it urgency, he made competition out of it, and he brought people together with it. And that inspirational idea is what captured the imagination of people all around the world. And so industry changed. The movies we saw changed. Everything was inspiring. Everything was out of space, science fiction pushing us. And so my whole upbringing was in that milieu. So one felt that it it was okay to think way ahead. And that just became part of what I've done. And so, you know, traveling on fast planes, fast cars, air conditioning in cars, electronic windows. I even, out of a block of wood when I was age nine, developed this very special walkie-talkie that allowed me to turn it into a TV, that allowed me to send messages from it, that allowed people to communicate with it, that could tell me things. And little did I know that's the modern day mobile phone sort of concept, you know, where it could do everything for you. We think ahead and and that became very much part of life. And I believe that generation really drove what we see today, which is a real belief of achieving. In terms of your high school years, what sort of student were you? Math, science or or sort of the humanities Um, or? I was actually interested in everything. I was really interested in everything and I remain interested in everything today. I just find interest in just about anything I care to look at and which is half my problem because I get caught up in conversation and I get led astray when I'm supposed to be thinking on things because my mind just loves holding up this diamond of knowledge and saying, no, how did that happen? And why does it happen? And what does it mean? What are the implications? So I studied Latin. I also did geography. I also did pure maths. I love physics and chemistry, English. I read lots of books. I'm very interested in politics. And in fact, at one stage during my medical career, I even started doing law because I really loved the whole concept of how you use evidence to structure an argument. But unfortunately, uh, I had to put that aside because one was just a bit too busy at that time and I thought I'd take it on. So, But it was really interesting reading about constitutional law, contract law, criminal law. Those are concepts that are actually very, very useful in medicine because it's about how you use the evidence and how you make a picture. It's about methodically working your way through the evidence, thinking logically, making the connection. Because medicine is actually all about making the connection, seeing the patterns. Yeah, I think when you sort of mentioned there are parallels between law and maybe other professions as well um, with medicine and some of those underlying principles, did you ever consider changing careers from medicine while you were in medical school? No, no. I just loved medicine. And right through my medical career, I thought, you know, the human body is the greatest riddle. It's one of those riddles that you never come up with the answer because there's always something new to know. And that's the best. In many respects, that's why I find orthopedics very interesting. Orthopedics, some might say, is everything from the foramen magnum down is yours. Take your pick. Whereas in some of the other surgical specialties, you have to stick to the gizzards, you know, (laughs) the kidney and the bladder. 
or just the blood vessels or something. And look, that's a very simplistic approach. But as a young student, as a resident, it intrigued me that you could actually pin your career on the whole body in in some way, but yet be specialized in how you might manage that. That was one of the interesting things about orthopedics. I believe you're a proud Austin Clinical School alumnus. Is that right? Oh, yeah. So it's really interesting. When I was in medical school, we had to decide which medical school we went to. And so when I was at the open day at Royal Melbourne, they said, we're here to train the best students. We're not here to be your friends. We're here to train the best doctors. And then I went to St. Vincent's Hospital and J.J. Billings with his big bushy eyebrows leant across the lectern, stared over his glasses at us and said, we're here to be your friends. And he said that, he frightened the daylights out of me. And then I went to the Austin and everyone called it the country club. You know, and I soon understood why. It was a very easygoing, pretty relaxed sort of place. And Everyone seemed to be your friend. And, you know, it wasn't as driven as Royal Melbourne or St. Vincent. certainly wasn't spoon-fed. But in some way, it said, we're here to provide you with the ingredients. The rest is up to you. And I think each of the clinical schools had the right people going to them that brought out the best in each of the students that went there. I think my personality would have suited any of the three schools, depending on which personality I want to switch on at that time. But I thoroughly enjoyed myself at the Austin, thoroughly enjoyed myself at the Austin. Great, great institution. What were you like as a medical student? If you think back now to, you know, maybe your mindset of how you approached medical school, I reckon they would have regarded me as very odd because I started wearing a tie in my last couple of years because, you know, we had clinical school and, and I noticed everyone was wearing a tie as consultants. So I popped a tie on and people would look at me and say, what's with the tie, you know? And I used to dress up a little bit, you know, instead of my jeans and the usual calmness of medical students. I was a lot more uptight, you could say, and all that sort of thing. And and I guess it sort of played itself out a little bit in, in my later life because it's really, in many respects, it's about perception management, isn't it? Like if I said to you, you had two people who could fly a plane and you're a passenger looking down the galley and one of them was dressed in long black slacks, white shirt with a tie on, four stripes on the shoulder and this very impressive hat on his head with an emblem of a plane versus the person standing right next to him, which would be someone in board shorts and thongs in a mambo shirt, both walking into the cockpit, who would you prefer to be flying the plane? Or if you were coming out of a bar at night, and as you walk down this dark street, you hear footsteps behind you and gruff voices intimidating you, threatening you. And at the end of the street was someone in uniform with a holster and a gun and a hat and they said Victoria Police on them. Would you go to them? You don't know who they are, just like you don't know who would, who those two people walking into the cockpit are. But who would you prefer to be there for you? And so that left me with the sense of when we're vulnerable, we don't know who's going to be treating us. We don't know anything about them, but we have to trust them. And that trust comes from so many different ways, how you speak to them, how you approach them, how you dress up. In fact, in my first year as the head of department here, I was very young. I got a complaint about people that didn't know who was there talking to them, whether they were the cleaner or so-and-so. They just marched up and And it was actually a complaining letter from someone in their 30s. You would think it should have been someone much older. And that said something to me that, you know, people wanted respect. 
people wanted to be treated courteously, people expected to know who they're teaching with, and they had a perception in their minds. And that perception was very powerful in terms of how it influenced the way they thought and perhaps the way they responded to treatment. I believe that perception remains very strong in guiding people to respond to care one way or the other. We, Of course, I don't go in a tuxedo with my little waistcoat on and black tie, but one can see why people might dress a little bit more formally when they're seeing patients or in a way that clearly indicates that they're seriously there for their job. Yeah, I think that that perception management point is quite interesting because you know, amongst the medical students for St. Vincent's expect students to wear a tie and all that sort of stuff. And I think it's interesting hearing it from that perspective. So in terms of you, Prof Chung, as a, as a medical student, what opportunities and experiences did you seek out? And what do you think are things which are beneficial for us as medical students to experience? So in, in my second and third year at university, in my so-called preclinical years, I did a summer job in a research department. And I just had this feeling I'd like to do something like that. I didn't know what I was asking myself or putting myself into or what I was actually trying to find, but I thought, you know, I'd just like to do that because it would be one opportunity of just discovering something new, doing something I would not normally do. It's safe because it's within my field. So uh, I applied for a, um, a Kidney Foundation summer scholarship, my first in, in year two, and got that. And the third year, I worked at uh, the Walter Eliza Hall Institute with someone called Tony Burgess, who, who's one of the directors there, previously of the Ludwig, and it was through the Ludwig Institute that I worked with. And that probably doesn't matter as much as the fact that I made the point of, of looking for things to do, of testing the waters, what is it like. And in fact, when I was a final year medical school, was, I did an elective overseas. I went to New Zealand where they had jobs so-called clinical assistants at that time, and you were supposed to assist the intern. But the reality was it was so undermanned that you it was just you and the registrar. And so I learned so much through the medical emergencies. I learned about how you approached a problem, how to respond to a problem. In fact, one of the first emergencies I was explaining to my daughter the other day was a drowning when I was in New Zealand. And because I was the youngest, I was or the most junior staff, I was left to man the emergency room as everyone went off for the end of year hospital barbecue on the beach. And in fact, one of the doctors drowned and was brought in and I was there as the person in emergency. And so it was a horrible, horrible, horrible way to see your very first resuscitation and it taught me a lot. And then uh, other people, whom patients who I got to know very well, one of them actually had a cardiac arrest right in front of me. So it influenced what I thought about this, made me reflect on the emotions that went through, and perhaps that shaped the way I would be later on in life in terms of how I might handle emergent situations. Yeah, it's quite interesting that when you talk about these often very confronting situations that you sort of experience when you're in New Zealand, I think for a lot of medical students, sometimes we struggle with confidence to sort of put ourselves and to be involved with those situations. But then on the other side, we worry about, you know, are we maybe being too confident? Are we sort of stepping outside the bounds of what we should do? 
nothing has changed in a hundred years. There were always super confident students, and there were always confidence that were like church mice. What you need is the ingredient in you that wants to learn, that wants to know more, for the purposes of serving the greater good. People have their ways of doing that. As a medical student, it boils down to being pragmatic. We all find our levels. We all know what sort of situation we like to be in. So we start off by looking for that situation, that environment, as it were. As we get more confident, we try newer environments. We start off a little sheepish. We get to know people. We develop a rapport. We seek a mentor. That mentor guides us, helps shape the way we are makes us ready for the next step. So our mentors, when you're a student, could be the junior resident, could be the intern for that whole year. And then as you get senior, it becomes the registrar. And then when you're the registrar, it's the junior consultant. And then when you're a consultant, it's the senior consultant. And I guess at the end of the day, what helps you is how you are mentored during this time because we are confronted by so many different emotions, situations, we are alarmed, we are rewarded. The full gamut of emotions I experienced during this very, very critical time in your formation, as it were. And I'm a firm believer that people need mentors. A mentor is merely someone who reflects yourself back to you. They, They don't give you the answers, but by reflecting back to yourself through questions or scenarios, they make you think. And the answer you give is actually what you need to do to improve, to grow and to change. They're the best mentors. Yeah, I think a, a really common theme that's probably going to come up in a lot more interviews that we do as well is this idea of mentorship and having someone there that you can you know, reflect your questions on and that sort of, that sort of stuff. What would, what would your advice be to medical students, you know, to find a mentor look there are programs for mentorship out there university of melbourne have plenty of programs and lots of people lots of books written about mentorship the reality is that a mentor is someone who you have confidence in and who you trust to say a truth and who you trust will hold your response to that truth in confidence who has attributes that make you look up to them and therefore respect what they say to you. We, we will find those people in our lives and only we will know who they are. Um, oftentimes, students will say, oh, I'd love to get this person as a mentor. And that person is so far ahead of them. The glide slope is really steep, so steep that all you ever do is you listen. You never say you're terrified. Mentorship's a two-way thing. If someone is too senior, it just doesn't work. And so it's like near peer. You really want a mentor who's a few years ahead of you, who's lived the experience, who speaks from connection with what you're doing and can advise. But everyone can give advice. It's questions who's giving good advice. And you will have to work that out yourself from the person who you trust. Are you able to see them as a mentor? Oftentimes, you don't officially say, will you be my mentor? Just like I don't say, I've officially been the mentor of this person. I might say, oh, I mentor medical students or I mentor junior consultants. And these particular people have come up to me and we've talked about these things. Similarly, you might find yourself once a quarter going back to this one person and saying, you know, I was just wondering, do you have time for a cup of coffee? I want to toss a few questions in your direction. And that becomes something else. And 
You know, my boss, when I was a resident, is a mentor of mine and he remains a mentor of mine. We have breakfast four times a year, him in his early 80s now. So that means I would have known him for almost 30 years or so. And we've grown up together and we practiced together and we did lots of things together as it turned out. But the reason why he's my mentor is I've come to know him and his opinions the way he conducts business, the way he's able to give me what I need in terms of information and advice. Because some people are great friends, but they could never advise you. They just simply couldn't. Others, they give advice and they expect you to follow it. Well, that's not a mentor. Mentors, it's a two-way thing. They get something from you and you get something from them and the relationship builds. And then there's a time where you change mentors too. Because mentors are for a certain segment of your life. And then you have to make the next step and you'll have a different mentor. And maybe following on that idea of making the next step. So you graduate medical school in, in 1984. You start working in, in Victoria. And then in your early career as, a, as an orthopedic surgeon, you started St. V's, the Alfred and Box Hill. I'm wondering those initial years as a resident and as a registrar, particularly what were some of the challenges that you encountered maybe with family work-life balance? It depends on what people want. And whole concept of work-life balance is a, is a changing feast, isn't it? There's only one person who knows about work-life balance, and that's the person to which the question of work-life balance refers. But that person is often surrounded by people who believe that their life could be better balanced if they only did this, if they only did that. The way I look at it is you feel the most balanced when you're happy. Nothing in the world can trouble you. I feel so good. Totally balanced. So what can we get out of our work and life that makes us constantly feel like that. Because you're most balanced when you're happy. You are least balanced when you're unhappy. And if you're unhappy, you have to find out what is it that's making you dissatisfied and then do something about it. Maybe it is working too hard. Maybe it's not working hard enough. I don't know. So each of us have to find out what, what makes us happy and what makes us tick. And that sense of contentment and happiness is what then therefore gives us balance. Now, what gives me, makes me happy is doing a good job, making sure my research teams feel well supported, that they feel I contribute, that I play my part, that my patients feel cared for, that someone's listening to them, that provides the best possible care and advice, that my family feel that they're well supported, that they're loved, that their imperatives are of a great concern to me. So I know what is my world. And the challenge is to find out how to do all those things in a way that it, if I succeed at them, it gives me great reward. It gives me great personal reward if I can do that. Any, all of those things. And there's a theme that runs through all those things and that is really to show that I care and that I care deeply for my researchers and for my patients and for my family. And if I can find out ways of doing that, and they're not going to be the same because I meet different patients who have different ways of expressing that I've hit the mark, my family very demanding, and they have a way of demanding a level of care. I have to find out what it is. That's the, that's the wonder of relationships, working it out. For me, it was really clear what I had to do in life to be happy, as it were. And each of us are very different. This is, this is just what, what I do. As a junior registrar, is there maybe one particular moment that you still hold really close to you? Well, yes, uh, sort of. And it's to do with the decision to do orthopedics. So when I was a resident, I was 
heading down the path of doing head and neck surgery, otolaryngology, head and neck surgery. I was incredibly taken by one of the surgeons, uh, Dr. Jack Kennedy, who's larger than life, sits on the board of the Collingwood Football Club, so you can just imagine. You know, he was a fabulous guy, straight up and down as they come, you know. And I was totally smitten by him. The original man crush, as it were, some 30 years ago. He, he was charming. He was strong. He was extremely courageous. Technically, he was so adept. And so I wanted to be an otolaryngologist, a head and neck surgeon. And so I studied and I passed my exams early and I hung around the group and I knew all the words and I watched how they operated and I was the resident. And then one day um, I was in the change room with a really, really nice neurosurgeon called Jim Cummins. And Jim said, and we're talking about horse races, must have been Melbourne Cup time or something. And he said, somehow it came to where he made this comment that, oh, you just got to be prepared to change horses. And I looked at him and he said something that sometimes that horse is not the right one or it's not the right time. And I don't know what we were talking about, but that really stuck in my mind. I didn't at that time take it to mean anything about anything other than that's what he said and it stuck in my mind. And I thought, hmm. Soon after that, literally walking down the corridor, the head of orthopedics stops me and says, if you want to do orthopedics, we'd support you. We think you're just the sort of guy to do that. And I said, yes, sir, I'm in. And this is after lining up to do otolaryngology and head and neck surgery. I suddenly, within one microsecond, decided I was going to do orthopedics. And then the rest is history. And, and what does it say to me? It says to me that life is about opportunities. What did I actually know about the specialty of surgery to so confine myself to one specialty, even before I knew the others? The way I rationalized it is I love surgery, so give me any specialty. Give me the opportunity to specialize. How competitive is that? And I'm in. I could have done urology, the urogliders, you know? I mean, if you're interested in surgery, you can do any surgery because you will find something really interesting in what you do. That becomes your shtick. And I found mine. So I, I, no one would have thought I would do orthopedics, as it were. But all the little life's experiences, as a student, had a great registrar in orthopedics at the Austin Hospital. He did something that made me laugh, but I thought, you know, he just explained it so simply, and that's, that's rather fun. Little thing sticks in the back of your mind, and I went on and I did other things. I loved everything I did. I almost became everything I loved doing, as it were. But this one moment was an opportunity. And I grabbed that opportunity. And all my life is about recognizing the opportunity when it arises and just grab it. Because opportunities are, are about an offering that you would not normally get. The question is whether you think it's an opportunity at that time. Because an opportunity is a freebie. Grab it. Yeah, I think that's interesting because Martin... Uh, Richardson also sort of talks about opportunity when we spoke with him and seeing that he sort of is a believer of saying yes to things as much as you can and then figuring how to fit them into your life. So I think that idea of taking hold of opportunities is really, really quite interesting. And I mean, in terms of your own career journey, you did also take up another opportunity to travel overseas yeah. and to work in 
in Sweden and also at the Mayo Clinic. So this was in the in the sort of mid nineties. In terms of your your international experience, you know, obviously the Mayo Clinic is the holy grail of hospitals around the world. I mean, I'm not too familiar with the musculoskeletal tumor center in Lund, Sweden, but I'm sure it's just as prestigious as the Mayo Center. So what do you think you learned by going overseas? First of all, once again, it was opportunity. I wanted to go to England to do a fellowship in spinal surgery because I felt that as a growing orthopedic oncologist, I would need to know how to move around the spine. So I applied for a position in London and I was told that I had to come trained because they weren't there to train me because they were too busy looking after the country. So, you know, it was it was all very interesting and I thought, well, maybe that's not quite the place I'd like to do. And very soon after, I was introduced to someone from Nottingham and plans were made that I should go there and do a spinal fellowship. But unfortunately, as things turn out, they had already promised someone a certain position but had forgotten to note it down. So that meant delaying things. But around about that time, I was sent sent to, to Sweden to do some research to have a look at a special device that helped us with our bone research. I was doing my doctorate at that time. And while I was there, I met a sarcoma surgeon who was head of the sarcoma service in Lund and also chair of the sarcoma surgery side for the Scandinavian Sarcoma Group. And because I was interested in sarcoma, which is the, my whole thing of going to Mayo and then to London or England, I thought, hang on, he's just offering a fellowship in Sweden where people are very good at what they do and very focused, Volvo, Ericsson, Nokia, and all that sort of Scandic approach to everything. The only problem is I don't know Swedish. Well, that doesn't matter. I'll learn Swedish. So I put my hand up to go and committed to a year. I had the best time because it was not expected. It was an opportunity. I had one-on-one with someone I would not normally have had. I learned a complete from the inside out approach to scan uh, to sarcoma from the very group that started the interrogation of sarcomas so i was so lucky again the thing about this is while i was the second year registrar in a four-year program i wrote to the mayo clinic normally people don't do that but i didn't know that i just wrote to them anyway and saying i'm really interested in going to the mayo clinic you're the best in the world this is what i want to do could you consider me in a fellowship to which they replied oh well you know this is only eight years ahead (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's a long time. We don't normally do that. But, you know, if you have a passing town, uh, pop in and see us. Well, no one pops in to Rochester, Minnesota, just to see someone because it is in the middle of nowhere. It is not on anybody's route, as it were. So I just thought, well, all right, I'll come over and I'll say good day. So I came over and I spent two days there saying good day, meeting the people and learning about them and being involved. And it was fantastic. Their total dedication to the care of the human being in every respect was so impressive. I had to go there. It was the center of the universe. They didn't do everything, but whatever they did, they did it extremely well. And everyone you saw in the corridors, that person wrote that book on such and such, and that person wrote that book on such and such, and this is the person who churns out all the papers, just walking around as if, you know, it's all business as usual. That's what the mayor was about. It was about being the best of the best. And for them to be that successful, it had to be normal. They had to be the best of the best every single day. I definitely am wanting to come here. So when I got back, I wrote to them 
I said, I definitely want to come. And he said, well, if you definitely want to come, we'll definitely pencil you in. And uh, I was set to go there in Sweden, came up the year before that, which meant that as an opportunity, I got to learn the surgery and the techniques and the knowledge of sarcomas. So going to Mayo, I now came as someone trained in sarcomas to then take up the pinnacle fellowship, as it were. And that they enjoyed that because it, it meant they could really help refine what I knew. And as I was finishing there, the people in Sweden said, we want to know what you learned at Mayo. Why don't you come back, spend another year with us? Which I thought, wow, this is fantastic. You know, this could go on. <laughs> and um, so I went back for almost another year and to three years overseas, doing three special fellowships, as it were, learning from the best and learning wonderfully about research and the way you think, the process, teamwork, how do you run teams, what does it take to be really good at what you do, what's in the, at the heart and soul of a grand institution, and then to have the opportunity, invited back to then head the Department of Orthopedics and be the first head of a bone and soft tissue sarcoma service for Victoria through the Peter Mac. It was, once again, a huge opportunity. And you can see how these opportunities string themselves up. You create your own opportunities. You're the CEO of your own life. You know, you look for strategies that help advance things yourself, what you do, how you do it. And one opportunity runs into the next. I think this is around the time when you would have started having your own family as well. Were they overseas with you? Or? My wife came with us. Our daughter was born in Sweden. We went back to the States very short on the way through, as it were, which allowed my daughter at that time, who was six weeks old, to experience a minus 100 degrees um, winter, <laughs> which was quite interesting. It was a time where you had yourself and your partner. And for me, it was a very educative time because you can be extremely selfish. You really can be because the only reason why we went overseas was for me. My wife's a nurse. She came along for the ride, as it were. But in fact, if not for her... You know, we would have suffered because she was the main breadwinner. They don't pay fellows at all very well. She continued working as a nurse. She provided support. When I wanted to leave the Mayo after three weeks because I said, I'm not really learning anything here, she said, now hang on a second, sport. <laughs> you come all this way to tell me that. I don't think so. So you need to settle down and look at what makes them the best. And, you know, it's just the young buck orthopod just passed the exams feeling good about life, thinking they know more than most things. And in fact, the opportunity is to just stop for a moment, look at what the experience is that's being offered and pick the best out of it. And I had one of the best years of my life at Mayo. They're deep friends of mine. I almost went back so many times to be there. And Sweden, fantastic. Those are opportunities that should never be missed because it truly is a life opportunity. You just see it so differently with the potential of being so much better when you get back. So you come back to Melbourne in 1996 and you become the inaugural professor and the director of orthopedics at St. V's and you also set up the sarcoma service at Peter Mac. You talked a bit about mentorship and that idea of finding sort of near peers. Now you're in a leadership position. How did your perspective change then in terms of maybe looking for mentors, but also that decision-making process, maybe not having people around you to help you make decisions? Well, there weren't any. And I can tell you one thing, great view from the top, but it's a pretty lonely place. You know, it's a pretty lonely place at the top. 
That's why so few people are up there, I think. But the thing is, you just had to be really clear. What's the vision? And being a leader is having a vision, being really clear about what that vision is, coming up with a strategy of how you will live out that vision, and then knowing who needs to be part of that. The leaders who can sort of bring that together run a very fine ship, a great team, because it's really, at the end of the day, the team that makes it happen. No one person can be everything. And the smartest leaders are the ones who build teams around them to make it work, and then stand the test of time. You know, if, if their legacy is a strong one, you know that they would have set up the foundations for something that you know will be enduring. So I was very clear uh, about where I wanted to go and how I wanted to do and what the objectives and aims are. And in fact, the other day I was looking in, in the drawer of my study and I actually found the original paperwork of the submission I had made to the hospital about where I wanted to go as the head of orthopedics. And that's, that was 1995, you know, 25, quarter of a century ago, same thing. You know, it's really... And to read that and to and to see and think that that's so contemporary, so contemporary means I'm on the track. You know, I'm doing that and what has grown. Mind you, I was only asked to set up an orthopedic group, make it academic, and set up a little service that looked after the rarest tumors the world has ever seen. And what have we got from that? We've got labs, we've got multidisciplinary teams, we've got the largest, one of the largest sarcoma services in Australia, we've got a massive orthopedic department, fully NHMRC funded, I reckon, you know, with a plan and a vision that's clear, you can entice people to come along for the ride that really contribute to success overall. Yeah, I think from that point forward, the uh, titles and the leadership positions in your career really speak for themselves. You've been the director of orthopedics, I think, since then. And you've also been the program director of surgery and surgical services between 2005, 2008. And at the time, you were also the CMO for St. Vincent's Hospital. That's a lot to manage, firstly. How do you juggle those really large competing priorities? And more pragmatically, what are some of the habits that you think have been really effective in helping you to manage time better? First of all, managing time takes time. You've got to make time to manage your time. I get up at three because I know I couldn't do everything I wanted to if I got up at six and seven and dragged my feet. Just couldn't for what I wanted out of life. I have to go to bed thinking that if I don't get up tomorrow morning, I have done everything I wanted to do today. And I always say if I'm wasting time, I'm actually wasting my life because it's such a finite part that we have. I think... To be effective and efficient, you've got to be able to make decisions. And if a problem lands on my table, I get it off the table by making a decision. It might come back, I'll deal with it then. But in the interim, it's off the table. So train yourself to make decisions. Train yourself to pick up very quickly what's actually important in a conversation. Learn to prioritize, learn what can wait, what doesn't need to be done straight away, what needs to be done soon. I used to say, whatever's important is never urgent, and whatever's urgent is never important. So the ability to prioritize is very, very important for someone who wishes to achieve. Uh, give it everything. 
absolutely give it everything. Energy, wholeheartedness, commitment, because then you become really effective. I like working in a time constraint. I know that I can accomplish and achieve if I just gave it my my fullest and I'm challenged. So, you know, you know, you're seeing someone who likes a challenge, who who likes to be put in a situation where prioritization is important, effective and efficient decision making is important, strategizing is important, and commitment to the delivery of a product. So, Prof, I mean, there are so many more things that I'd love to ask and speak with you about today, though maybe that will have to wait for a future episode of the podcast. Uh, to round out this interview, uh, I'd like to reflect on your career and invite you to talk a little bit more about your work so far. Since becoming the Director of Orthopedics at St. Vincent's, you've developed a lot of the research infrastructure at the hospital. A lot of the research projects that you're also doing these days surround innovation, in particular the use of 3D printing using cartilage cells via the BioPen device which you helped to design. And, you know, 3D printing custom orthoses like the custom heel transplant that you did in 2014. For those who are interested in this kind of clinician researcher sort of pathway, was this something that you sort of sought out or was this something that sort of naturally came to you? Yeah, well, look, I think the research work that I did as an orthopedic surgeon and in the orthopedic labs gave me a real skill and also gave me a recognition that it took more than just one person in one group to achieve things. And later on, when I became the Hugh Devine Professor of Surgery for the hospital, it suddenly opened doors for me because I was now within the university system as a chair of surgery. And I had so much more to gain by reaching out to so many more people and working closely with my colleagues at University of Wollongong, Swinburne, RMIT, within the University of Melbourne, Monash, I realized that success will only come through collaboration, no matter what level. I tell my students to collaborate, I tell my postdocs to collaborate, I collaborate, every single level. And it's through that collaboration you get a real melting pot of ideas where you can fire up a very, very, very nice research program that comes out. And that's that's what I've learned. And, and more recently I've taken on the role as head of department of surgery for the university, which therefore involves all the clinical campuses. And that's a great way of championing the cause amongst your profession, amongst the, the discipline of surgery in itself. You know, so you reach out as the professor of surgery, you profess for all of surgery, not just your specialty. And and that's where once again you you have your team, your flock as it were, and 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 you mentor them, drive them, support them to do better in the areas that they're interested in. And you you know, what can I do in my role to help them achieve? Because then we all achieve. Prof, looking back on your career now, which really is an embarrassment of riches in terms of all the amazing things that you've achieved, how do you keep that creative and innovative streak that you had as a child alive as you know we see medicine becoming increasingly algorithmic? As I said earlier, I was always fascinated about things. I, I always want to know how something worked or, or why it is or why things are the way they are. And I guess the older you get, the more you realize you don't know, which for someone who just wants to know about knowledge, that's fantastic. That means that there's so much more to know. 
And there's always more to learn, always more to learn, you know, and we've got to be able to be humble enough to appreciate that, honestly, because I think it takes humility to learn. One of the things that I've, I've enjoyed the most is being surprised by the novelty of so many things that would be taken for granted. One of my more recent um, research themes has been in indigenous health. How can I go from tissue engineering, robotic surgery, to indigenous health in arthritis? Well, it's given me immense joy pulling that group together and asking the question, how do we complete the circle of our research by, by addressing one of the, the greatest emptiness in this country, which is how do we provide care in terms of indigenous, indigenous Australians we need to be training indigenous researchers. We need to be mentoring and sponsoring indigenous doctors, nurses, physios, whoever you like. If we're gonna resolve the issue of inequity, we've gotta make sure we build a mechanism, build, find the ingredients that will help us with, with what I think is a very worthy cause. Looking back on your career as well and all the lessons that I guess you've learned along the way. What's, what's one lesson that you wish you had learned earlier? There is one lesson that I learned that was quite poignant and probably people who followed me over the last 20 or 30 years may have picked the time when I learned that lesson, but not what the lesson was. When, when I first started out as the head of orthopedics, I came from a time where it was quite hierarchical and it was really strict, and you had the mitre in your hand, and you laid down the law of how it would be. And usually you were right, because that's why they employed you to do those sorts of things. Everyone was very serious about everything, and strict, and overbearing, and all the stereotypes you could have imagined of a head surgeon. I was like that. And then I decided one day that I would take my daughter horse riding, and then I watched and I thought, you know, that's rather nice. I could do that. That looks really lovely. And then I decided I would take up horse riding myself. And for anyone who's ever ridden a horse, they'd appreciate that. When you have 70, 750 pounds of animal underneath you, you don't make the horse do anything. You just hope it does it safely and you are still on board when they stop doing it having fallen off a few times and having horses buck and carry on, it's quite frightening when that happens. And what I learned with a horse is you do three maneuvers when you want them to do something. You grab their attention by doing something called a half halt, little tug on the rein saying, hey, hang, hang about, I'm about to show you something. And then you indicate with another rein saying, I want you to turn this way. And then you encourage them with your leg, nudging them along. So you get their attention, you show them what you want, then you encourage them along. And all of a sudden, I could ride a horse. I could ride a horse well. I could ride a horse and, and be confident on a horse. And we started to, because the horse doesn't know English and I don't know a horse, but we have to follow a set routine in competition. And how accurately you do it without anyone noticing those moves is what it's all about. And I suddenly realized I can't whip the horse, because although I carried a whip, and I can't kick it with my spurs, although you feel like doing that, because it's not going to respond. And junior staff, you need 
to indicate that you're about to show them something. You need to show them pleasantly what you're doing and you need to encourage them to do it. And then you get a successful partnership and an understanding between the two. Learning how to ride a horse really taught me a lot and people might think that's somewhat facile, but in fact, it influenced me so much of how it's about respect and asking a horse to do something, not telling them what to do. You actually ask them, would you do this? So you ask your trainee, your student, I'd like to show you this. Would you like to do that? Okay, this is how you might do it. Here, you have a go. You know, it's, and encourage them as they do it. No one likes to be whipped if they don't get it right. They just want to be shown how to get it right. How do we encourage them to do that? How do we give them the confidence so that they will try and do it on their own and then get joy out of doing it? You know, something really, really simple. The joy. When you end up putting your first row of sutures in and closing a wound at the end of surgery or putting your first screw in on a plate or reducing your first collie's fracture by yourself because you're in charge, you will know what I mean by the joy of something really simple. You know, because you did it. Again, another sort of attribute that's become really quite apparent as we sort of get to know you more is this... I guess an enjoyment of doing a job well. Maybe in some ways that's what you mean by also finding is the, the joy of something really simple, but something simple done well. In terms of when you consider all of your personal attributes, your habits, your tendencies, the way that you think about things, which one or two of those things would you credit the most as you know, contributing to where you are today? I think I'm very fair. What does that mean? Well, I don't carry too much baggage. I think my research will show I'm pretty agnostic. I start off with a null hypothesis that something doesn't work, and then I set up a project to defeat the null hypothesis. I don't come into it saying, this is going to work, and I'm going to do an experiment to show you that, because then that's the bias. I'm very fair to listen to both sides. I champion justice. I hate seeing people kicked in the shin for no good reason, you know, and, and I want people to grow. I get an immense joy out of helping people grow. Those attributes have stood me well, being recognized. I might be very firm, but I'm certainly very fair. Everyone who's been with me, who's felt that they wish to spend some time with me, with, I hope would be left with a sense that I would support them endlessly for what they do, and that any opportunity that I can create for them is a reward for me. And so the final question from me today, Prof, is what can we catch you doing on the weekend? I ride on weekends. I write I read, and if it's during football season, I'm a mad keen football follower. I love spending time and dining with my family because that's not something that I do often. So spending the time having lunch or dinner, that's what I'd like to be caught doing. And, and generally so on weekends, generally so. I think there's one day you just got to give off as yours, at least one day. Some people can get two or three, which is fantastic, but not for what I have to do. But I, I give myself one day. I think that might be a good point for us to wrap up the episode. I think it's really inspiring hearing about your journey and some of the intricacies and certain moments that really stand out to you. And I, I think in terms of all the listeners, this will help them to grow a little bit as well and help them to think about problems in a different way. So I really appreciate the time that you've given us today to speak to you. And thank you so much for being on the show. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. I've really enjoyed this very, very much. Thanks so much for tuning into today's episode of the Time Out podcast. If you'd like to hear more from us in the future, please consider subscribing to the show on the Apple and Spotify podcast platforms. 
If you'd like to contact us or have any thoughts that you'd like to share, please do so via our Facebook page, The Surgical Student Society of Melbourne. The Surgical Student Society of Melbourne would like to thank our two major sponsors for 2020, the Medical Indemnity Protection Society and the Department of Surgery at the University of Melbourne for their ongoing support. Please find in the show description a link for the Department of Surgery's e-learning module entitled Pathways to Career Progression, as well as two links from MIPS for students. The Surgical Student Society of Melbourne would also like to thank Michelle Andrews, who's the co-host of the Shameless podcast, for her support in helping us to put this program together. You can find the Shameless podcast on Apple and Spotify podcasts as well. This episode was edited by Karen Gunatilaka and Alex Grogan. Special thanks to Jenny Pham and Rashan Kari for their help in organizing today's guests. My name's Jason and I hope that you'll tune in again soon.